right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, comedians? What the fuck, Avinians? Is that something? Is that what the fuck, Olovians? Uh, I think I screwed it up. All right, look. I'm a little tired. I'm a little out of it. I've just spent the last two days uh, shooting. The first two days of shooting have gone well. But uh, I have no uh, precedent set in my life for this type of work, for uh, acting and doing uh, live. I, it's just all new to me, and it's very exciting. That said, um, I'm trying not to be maudlin or bring everybody down, but Boomer has not come home, and I, you know, I'm tr- I'm holding on to hope. And God, I really thank all of you for all the letters of support and the tweets of support and all the advice i've done what i can i put out uh i put out flyers with this picture on it i put them in mailboxes up and down and around the neighborhood i've called him all over the place i don't know that people in this neighborhood would really put cats into shelters so i haven't done that yet i mean there are cats all over this neighborhood i fear the worst but i'm trying to be optimistic i've gotten a lot of emails from people who say they've had cats that have been gone Five days, ten days, two weeks. Uh, I'm just trying to be optimistic, but I'm you know, I'm fighting sadness. I woke up in the middle of the night last night. It's a little brutal because I realized that my cat, Boomer, Boomy, as you know him, disappeared uh, like the same day that my neighbors went out of town because I texted them to see if they had seen him, and uh, they said they were out of town. And then last night in the middle of the night, I'm like, oh my God, maybe they shut something they don't usually shut because he goes over there to eat and stuff. And maybe he's locked in something over there. So I woke up at four in the morning and I had a shoot today. I bolted up in bed with this this new idea that I cracked the case that, that Boomer was locked in something right next door. It was like 3.48 in the morning. I'm in my boxers and I get up. My heart is pounding. I go out onto the deck. I turn on the deck lights and I don't even know what I'm doing out there. I'm just standing on the deck and I'm looking over at my neighbor's yard. Just thinking he's he's stuck somewhere. And I'm just standing on the deck in my underwear in the middle of the night. And I hear the window open to the bedroom, which the window goes onto the deck. And Jessica says, what are you doing? Come inside now. I could only imagine what she was thinking. I couldn't even explain myself. I, I mean, she must have had that moment where, oh my God, Mark is on the deck in the middle of the night wearing his underwear, staring at the wall. But I was just beside myself and I and I texted, I texted my neighbors at four in the morning to tell them about it, to tell them my big my big idea. And they said that, well, our cat door's open and uh, we've got neighbors feeding the cats. And then I thought, well, they, you know, maybe Boomer's in there. Why wouldn't he want to hang out over there, be fed every day, be inside and uh, not on a hot deck with a cat that doesn't like him. But I don't know. I walked over there. You know, I'm going on and on about this, but I'm hanging on to hope. We'll see what happens. That said, it was made even more difficult because, you know, part of the show that we're shooting involves Boomer, part of the episode. So I've got a uh, a cat that's that's portraying Boomer 
and I and it's amazing what these what these uh, production people are doing, what the set people are doing, the art people are doing. Uh, they had a cat person, and and I told them you know what Boomer looked like, so they got this cat that's like the same color as Boomer, and he did a you know I did some scenes with this with this fake Boomer, and I was like oh this is sad, but it's cool. Uh, it, it's just it's just been a little difficult. This the, and the weird thing about cats is is I never really thought about this way. I mean, on some level, not unlike any other relationship, I guess a cat can leave you. I know they're territorial. They're not the same as dogs. Uh, they're sweet, but I don't know. I know they care about me, but but I guess relationships can go bad. Maybe he's split. The best that could happen is that he's in a nice home and he's eating well. The worst that could happen is he's suffering. And the saddest thing that could happen outside of suffering is that he's dead, but I'd rather him be dead than suffering. In my mind, right now, he's eating somewhere else and having a nice time enjoying some air conditioner. That's my fantasy for my cat that's missing, is that he's on vacation somehow. But I'll tell you, this shooting thing, the, uh, the, I've, I've, never, I've never experienced this before. They, they rented a house to make into my house because this show is obviously about my life and it's based on me and it's, it's an amplification. It's a fictionalization of my life, but they wanted to get it right. So they rented this house not far from mine, and I had no idea what they were going to capture. You know, the art people came over. They took pictures of the garage. They took pictures of the uh, of the of the living room and the bedroom and everything else. And I went over to the set the first time a couple of days ago, and it was like fucking ridiculous. They recaptured my house almost identically. They rented the same furniture. The garage looks like the garage. It's a little different, but uh, but but they decorated it exactly the same way. It was mind blowing. It was almost freakish. It was actually a bigger house than mine. I'm like, well, if you guys can do this after the shoot, if I ever get a bigger house, could I just hire you to, to expand on what is already clearly an identifiable style that is me? Pretty wild, man. It's pretty fucking wild. And I gave the, the set, I gave the production my couch because they like the detail of the arm of the couch being ripped to shreds by cats over the last six years. And I ordered a new couch because I needed a new couch anyways. So we made the switch. And now I'm wondering, how the hell do I keep Monkey and LaFonda from destroying my new couch? I mean, at least I'd like to get a month of it out of it. I'd like to get like one month out of my couch before they destroy it. Because when you have cats, like as soon as you get anything new, a rug or a couch, you're like, they're going to fuck it up immediately. You're going to watch them do it. They're going to do it right in front of you while they're looking at you. Cats will dig their claws into your new furniture or your new rug and start pulling on it while they're looking at you. Just sort of like, yeah, you're going to do anything about this? Fuck you. Uh, I need to do this. I'm not even aware that you're upset about it. Look at me destroy the furniture you just got because it's mine to help me with my claws. I don't know how much I can really say about my show. I'll just give you one little taste. I, I, I just don't know. I have to figure out what. I don't want to spoil anything about the stories or about, uh, you know, what's happening, you know, what the show is. You know what it is. I just don't want to spoil anything. But I will say this. I did work with Mr. Dave Foley today. How's that? Come home, Boomy. I'm going to write a song about that. That's going to be my that's going to be my blues song. Boomy come home. Let's talk to Dave Alvin. So 
So, anyways, I'm dealing with this cat thing. Are you? I I picture you're a dog guy. Are you? No, a, uh, well, I was for years, but uh, I, I've since been converted. I have four, two of which are missing now. right now. Yeah, up in Silver Lake. Mm-hmm. That's bad. I know. <laughs> Fuck. I know. You can pull that mic right into you. All right. Awesome. I, you know, I'm psyched Beautiful. to talk to you. You know, yeah. got a lot of respect for your music. And there's that one, I think I told you about that moment. Oh, our, our, our moment in time, yeah. You can smoke in here if you want. Oh, fuck, you're kidding me. No, let's do it. Dude, want me to open a window? or? No, I used to smoke. I can take it. I'll just do a, a, a puff or two just to <laughs> no, just man. relax. No, man, do it up. <laughs> I'll be like Smoke them if you got them. Who's the guy you saw the TV show, Martin Downey? Yeah. <laughs> or Tom just, Snyder. Was well, yeah, both of them. Yeah, Just Tom wheezing was... their way. Tom used to smoke yeah. on yeah on camera. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've, I've told this story on the podcast, but I'm going to tell it again just so we can start from there, because uh, it's it was a weird moment because your recollection of it, I it was it had to have been 19 late 87 or early 88. The Hard Rock Cafe had just opened down it- there in the Beverly Center, and I was still up at the comedy store being a doorman, just dicking off. And one afternoon we went over there to eat, and we'd never been in there. And I went into the bathroom, and I was pissing, and then you came in and started pissing next to me in the urinal and there were gold records up on the wall and I said how come you don't have a record up there and you looked at me and said because I'm not a fucking whore <laughs> <laughs> it's it's possible it happened right I'm not making it up no I remember it I remember that because um, you said it was the only time you'd ever been in there it's the only time I've ever been in the in the now now long gone uh, Hard Rock Cafe in the Beverly Center and I, it may have been earlier than 88 because uh, I think it was like I think I was still in the blasters right and just barely though yeah, right just barely so maybe 86 85 somewhere around in there and i had sworn that i would never go into the hard rock cafe and uh and then there was some kind of like record company you know lunch dinner thing right right that right i had to go to right so i was there under protest and i, I remember kind of maybe um perhaps having a beverage you know or <laughs> yeah. two or three or four yeah. in those days and uh and yeah, so I, I remembered it because when I, you know, it wasn't something I woke up every morning and said, hey, yeah, I remember that time with the hard rock. No, I But when I heard the story, I was like, oh my God, I do remember that. Yeah, it, it was just a moment. Yeah. And it was just, a, to me, it was like, well, that's who that guy is. That makes perfect fucking sense. <laughs> He's not going to take any shit. And were you having trouble with a record company at the time? Uh, it, in some ways, you're always having, you know, in, in those days, especially... You right, know, uh, you were always having some sort of trouble with the record company. But know? when you started out, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know what your history is. I know you come from around here, right? Yeah, and where at Downey, California? Like the what? What the hell is in Downey? Uh, when I was a kid, uh, orange groves and avocado groves and bean fields and so farms were still and there. North American Rockwell, where they they built the 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 rocket that went Spaceship. to the moon. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, and then I woke up one morning and. Uh, the orange grove part of that was gone and it was just sort of you know working class middle suburbia class, suburbia yeah, yeah. and uh, was your dad in the rocket business no my dad was a union organizer for the united states steelworkers of america wow yeah right on yeah. so uh was you was it a politicized household was there was he fighting the good fight how did it oh work? yeah yeah we uh my brother phil and i yeah we got an education very early on um because what he would do is there would be organizing trips into the southwest and in the in west of the mississippi the steelworkers union besides representing steelworkers in fontana and maywood and oakland and places like that yeah uh they also they did copper miners coal miners things like uh 
people that worked in mining. So we would go to on organizing trips through, you know, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming. We we lived, you know, for a while uh, in Vail. Colorado. Where, yeah, in Vail, yeah. Colorado, before it was Vail. And before it, they ruined it, well, before they whatever they did to it, put that but gondola. I, but, in I had, there. but I have a memory of you know we were staying in this one of those like shoebox motels. Yeah, and my brother Phil and I, being little kids, playing in the middle of the street, the the highway. Yeah, that now is Interstate seventy or whatever it is. You know, and back then it was just that's where we played. Right, and that'll make you feel old. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Remembering the days where you could play in the highway. Yeah, exactly. That's that's now this massive you know this massive city. But what was amazing about that. Um, was when we were, you know, in Bisbee, Arizona, or Douglas, or Clifton, Morency, or, or um, you know, uh, the little mining towns in Colorado, um, Minturn, uh, what is it, Red Cliff, things like that. We, those were, those were mining towns, yeah. meaning basically company towns. And uh, so there were a, f- a few times where there'd be like midnight clandestine meetings. And we were, you know, I was like five, six years old. And our dad uh, was always, you know, he gave us this education about there's another world besides the world that, you know, is, is presented to you besides what you see on TV or besides what you read in the newspaper. There's this other thing, this other, another side of the story, basically. And we learned that real early. And so that was a, a huge formative thing on us. But then back in Downey, where we grew up, um, yeah, the, the people were told. There were some of the parents. You know, Downey was kind of a. Uh, in those days, it would have swung for. Um, oh, I don't know, Santorum. Yeah, right. Know? Sure. And uh, so there were there were families who were like, "Don't play with the Alvin kids." Oh, really? Yeah, go play with the Barnes kid. What he burnt down an orange grove. Yeah, yeah, but don't play with those Alvin kids. They're they're commies. They're commies. Yeah. Well, that's well, that's it's interesting because you know some of that stuff. If that's the way your your brain was wired, I mean that applies to any sort of. Uh, it, it brings you all the way up to that moment at the urinal. I mean because <laughs> it's it's sort of a fight, you know, against corporate America, against insensitivity to the human struggle, and also like the type of music that you come from i mean it had to have speak to something i mean was your dad playing pete Seeger songs i mean did you have those records and stuff? we had um uh we had um um a lot of joe glazer records and joe glazer you know sings the songs of joe hill and uh, things like that and you know my old man when properly lubricated uh my old man liked to drink vodka straight yeah and uh so when properly lubricated you know he would you know solidarity forever and this that and the other or which i what i enjoyed even more was on hot you know we didn't have air conditioning so on hot summer days uh the old man would be he'd do his yard work or whatever his chores were then he about four he'd hit the vodka yeah and he would uh, basically be in his, his boxer short and his T-shirt, and he'd put on the Polka records because we're half Polish, <laughs> his last name, Shazewski. Yeah. And, um, and so then, he, and then he'd dance around the living room like yeah. that with the Polka records blasting, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, so those are, those are... And that's sort of, that's the drive shaft of uh, Conjunto music. Yeah, you know? in a way, yeah. yeah. You know, so, I mean, I'm just sort of fascinated with this idea 
that I don't know how you found the the music that you found. I mean, you, you know, you got a your drive on the guitar is something very specific. You you know, I, you don't hear it a lot. It's yeah. unique to you. I yeah. mean, even though we're you know we're working with that sort of blues you know structure, yeah. you're just you know you stay ahead of the fucking beat and you're just nothing. I you know it's unbelievable. But much to the chagrin of any drummer that plays with me. <laughs> you do though, right? Come on, catch yeah. up. <laughs> it's true. Uh, well, but yeah, no, times. but I'm no, it's but you I've know gotten, what I mean. You just hit better. No, no, I think it's a good. No. Thing. I'm kidding. No, uh, it's um, it's um, I, I uh, part of it. It has to do with with our old man um, teaching us early on that there's another side to things, right? So if you hear, you know, so in my brain, whatever I heard or saw, I was already thinking, well, what's the other side of this, right? But then I also I I credit my cousins. I had older cousins. Thank God um, for the older guys with uh, the records, right? Was the main one was a, was a gal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my cousin Mike, who was about uh, 10 years older, uh, was a folky, and he played banjo, and he played acoustic guitar, and and he had, you know, Ramblin' Jack, Elliott Records, and Dave Van Rock, and Sonny Terry, and Brownie McGee, and early, early Dylan, and all that stuff. And then my cousin JJ grew up um, uh, out on a ranch in the in the northwest san fernando valley yeah up in the hills and um in what is now the the tract homes of of granada hills and porter ranch that's where he grew up so he was into buck owens and things like that yeah. and then my cousin donna who was the best yeah my cousin donna was maybe about i don't know 14 years older than us something like that and she was the one she she was from bell california for, and bell uh, was as working class as you could get in Southern California. Um, and these are for people that don't live in, in California, or actually people that do. Um, these towns, Bell, Huntington Park, Bell Gardens, Cudahy, Southgate, uh, Maywood, Downey, Pico Rivera, Bellflower, Linwood, Compton. Um, this was a different, this is a different world. You know, when we, we would go to, um, you know, when we were teenagers and, you know, got into pot, we would get high and drive to the west side because that was like our cheap European vacation. Right. Because that was like a whole other world. It was like, <laughs> wow, look at that building, you know. <laughs> yeah. But my cousin Donna was from Bell, California, and um, she was a rock and roller, R- yeah. R&B chick. Right. In her own words. Right. And she she was, she had a bitch in like 49, you know, Chevy that was right. kind of tricked out. Yeah. She had a 45 record player in it that looked like in the toast- car in the car yeah it looked like a toaster and that's it, pretty advanced yeah and that's sometimes our cousin donna was stuck with me and phil and so we'd be in the she'd throw us in the back seat and she and her girlfriends and they'd be wearing the the pedal pushers and they had their hairs sprayed yeah, up it, in the bouffants yeah and we'd have to sit in the back and be quiet while they go and cruise and but she'd be playing these 45s and yeah. it was everything from big joe turner to uh Ray Charles to Jimmy Reed, all this kind of stuff. So we were soaking that up. And then when she got tired of her record, she gave them to us. And so really my music, my musical thing is really just my older cousin's taste in music yeah. just combined. And when we would have family gatherings, which was fairly often of the, the huge extended family, my cousin Mike would bring his guitar and banjo. My cousin JJ would bring his guitar. And then Donna would be like the... The, the one prodding everybody on play something play something and mike would play michael rode the boat ashore and then right. jj would be like well that ain't hip you got you want to get hip you want to hear some buck owens and yeah he'd play and i to me you know when you're a kid it's just music sure you don't know the difference between buck owens and michael rode the shore or anything you just 
a good song. Yeah, yeah. You, you can know? play that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that's yeah. So I'm I'm a combination of all their taste in music. So like when you when you started playing, wait, how, when did the blasters happen? When did you decide to do that? Well, we, and why that music? My brother had uh, had always had a blues band. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and you guys uh, always got along, or no. I mean, never? No, no. We we we, uh, we go off and on. We're brothers. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And um, but he had um, uh, always had a blues band, and there were a lot of great musicians for whatever reason reason in the area which yeah. we grew up, and um, so we started hanging out in bars. Because we started collecting 78s. Yeah. And, you know, because uh, for whatever reason, I think in hindsight, I describe it as we were trying to peel back the pavement. Yeah. And uh, and see what was underneath. Because yeah. in those days, there was a lot of stuff underneath the pavement. And it was easy to lift the pavement once you once you knew how to do it. Yeah. And, um, and where we lived, um, we were near the places you know there was a diaspora out of the south and out of the midwest during the during the 30s and 40s both the dust bowl migrants and then um um, um african americans migrating out of the south out of texas and Louisiana, right. particularly for for better jobs better jobs yeah. better life yeah. less less segregation so there were all these great musicians, and they were playing neighborhood bars. Really? Yeah. In Downey. In Downey. Yeah. No we shit. We could go to yeah. There was a place two blocks from our house called Marmax. Yeah. And the piano player in the lounge, you know, there was, yeah. Marmax was like one of these all-you-can-eat prime ribs, six ninety-five. Kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. And it had a lounge with a drummer and a piano player, and he was doing you know Stardust or whatever the popular songs were, and uh, but his name was Lloyd Glenn. And Lloyd had been a star in the L.A. Central Avenue scene in the 40s and had produced Ray Charles' first records, was a brilliant pianist. And so we would, one of the places we got our education was we would just, once we figured this out, Phil and I and the various other guys that eventually became the Blasters, we would just go sit at at the, the table and say, play some blues. Yeah. Play some boogie woogie. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and he'd like look around and he'd go like, you know, wait, just give me a minute. Let me appease the white people here, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, and then we started, uh, yeah, uh, basically kind of following Big Joe Turner and T Bone Walker around like like deadheads. And I, I guess I was about thirteen, fourteen years and old. T Bone Walker was still alive, huh? Oh yeah, still I mean, alive. Like, and because it's wild, you got to be the last generation that you know. You were lucky to have found that in yeah. California, because usually you hear those stories. It's about Chicago, yeah, or it's about the South, yeah. or like all the you know the blues that migrated up and electrified in Chicago, yeah. and you got all these like uh, Bloomfield and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Paul Butterfield, yeah, yeah, Butterfield sitting around yeah. like you know getting their chops. Yeah. But you were able to find that here, yeah, because so, there was a whole West Coast scene based out of Central Avenue in L.A. Right, and it was you know so we were friends with Eddie Cleanhead Vincent, and and uh, you know you you could you could still go into a bar and see Pee Wee Creighton and Percy Mayfield, right? You know, you yeah, do yeah. That, or Big Joe Turner, whether it's a neighborhood bar. So you know, um, you know, there were bars like a, there used to be a place in, on West Adams called Vinas. And on a Sunday nights, you could go into Vinas and like the guys from the Count Basie Orchestra would have the night off. So they would go to Vinas. And jam. And jam if they were in town or the well, Ellington. Yeah, of course that makes and, sense. Yeah. And so there was this whole world. And like I said, the whole sort of blues, jazz scene. Um, there were all these great players that then, the reason I brought up Marmax was yeah. there were all these great players that started uh, playing these lounge gigs. 
Right. And so, you know, between going to clubs like the Ashgrove to see, you know, Lightning Hopkins or Reverend Gary Davis, you could go to a bar and see Johnny Guitar Watson. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, or you could go to a bar and see guys like, little known guys like uh, Al Morgan and Buddy Banks who played with Fats Waller and played with Basie and all that. And now they're they're doing their things that there were these lounges all Just over there. Just cutting loose. Well, they were, they were doing the standards. For the right. White, they were appeasing the white people making a living. Right. But there are these guys that were part of jazz and blues history, and right. they're just right there. And you could go if you couldn't make it to you know to to uh, L.A. to see uh, you know Muddy Waters, you couldn't get the ride the twenty five miles up to L.A. You could just walk you know, <laughs> over and see <laughs> these other guys, and eventually convince them, "Hey, remember that record you made in nineteen forty seven on the Swing Time label? Can you play it?" <laughs> you know, and they would. Yeah, eventually. Yeah, once once you know things they, quieted down. Yeah, they had to play. You know, just whatever the top forty of nineteen, whatever. And how did you guys start playing that stuff? Did you were you in the situation? When did you start playing guitar? Seriously? Yeah. Uh, probably about five years ago. Yeah. Well, <laughs> was good, when I really got into it. It takes no. a while to focus sometimes. Yeah. Uh, we we always had guitars laying around the house. Right. Our old man played violin, interestingly. And Fiddle or violin? Violin. Yeah. And he played the organ. Yeah. And interestingly, he had, he had his own unique reproach. <laughs> but part of it was our cousins. You yeah. Know, and, and, and our cousin Mike, you know, being able to play banjo what, what was that like, moment though where you're on the guitar and you're like holy shit this is it was it just that like that you know that uh was it a blues riff or just like because when i figured out how to do that alternating thing like dun, 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 i was like oh it's over that's it <laughs> I, what else do you need really you really don't need anything else <laughs> i coasted for years on that um, it's a great thing that is a great thing yeah it's, it's a beautiful moment i had i had so many of those moments and i still have them you know and it's weird as as, as broad as my musical taste get that when I play, it's only going to be that really. Yeah, it's only going to be three chords. Yeah, and obviously, you know, you know, over the evolution of your guitar playing, like I just, uh, I was listening to the Public Domain album. Yeah. that at some point you're like, I'm going to fucking study this shit. <laughs> Did you do that? I mean, because on that record, I mean, your attention to uh, the details of of the way that stuff was played originally, and then bringing it up to where you're at was definitely I could hear it. Well, you're always studying it. You right. Know, that's the great thing about any kind of roots music is is you're always gotta study it because there's always something to learn. You know, like you said when you first learned how to go dun 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 yeah. dun oh, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, wrap it up. Yeah, I'm you, dialed. You'll at least build from there. I never really well, built from there. But when you say roots music, because there's this uh, this idea and, and it was a reality that when you started the blasters there was something happening, you know, with Los Lobos yeah. and some other cats that was really uh you know an homage but also a movement to sort of uh, reinvent that music. Well, there were... Um, but the what, band kind of did it as well, right? Yeah, well, we were all working day jobs. I, right. was, I was a fry cook down in Long Beach. Oh, God bless you. Yeah. Doing the Lord's work. I was. Cooking I was. fries, throwing that shitty fish in there. Actually, I was a cook in a Middle Eastern restaurant. Oh, good. And falafels. In, in his, yeah, I was making falafels. Yeah, uh, making the balls. For, for a wonderful Israeli guy named uh, Eitan Hanani. That's that's something you don't hear too often. Wonderful and Israeli together. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a rare poetic uh, positioning of words. <laughs> but good for you. I'm glad you had that experience. Um, and uh, so it's a long story. But yeah, we just decided I was What, 20. the fry cook story? All stories are long, right? <laughs> Um, so I was like 21 yeah, and, uh, basically this kind of scene that we'd grown up following, you know, big Joe and all those right. guys in those clubs that was dead or dying. It was gone. Really? What year are we talking? And we're talking about 
by 76 that was all done. that was all gone yeah you know yeah. and they, the disco was here the, yeah it was disco and and it was um love american style or love boat and was, just the beginning of punk maybe yeah well that's what happened was um as um i saw on tv i got back from work and i saw on tv there used to be that great guy lloyd dobbins and Lloyd Dobbins had this report on this thing going on in England called Punk Rock. Right. And this was this was right after the Sex Pistols had done that appearance on whatever BBC morning show. And they said, fuck and motherfucker. And, yeah. Know. And the Queen sucks or yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And so it was this big scandal. So he did this thing. And, and I was watching it. And they're interviewing Johnny Rotten. And they're interviewing uh, Joe Strummer and The Clash were just making their first couple singles. Yeah. And they interviewed the gal from X-Ray Specs and all right, this. Right, right, right. And I'm watching it. And I had a beard. I looked like some guy that probably you know lives in Brooklyn now. Yeah. You know, I had that look going You're on. Your fry cook with a beard in yeah. an Israeli restaurant. Yeah, yeah you, exactly. you did live in Brooklyn. Kind of. yeah. <laughs> yeah, we called it Long Beach. Um, but um, I found out watching this thing, these guys were the same age as me. Right. And I was like, wait a second, because we had all kind of given up. And like I said, we were all the guys eventually became the Blasters. We were all working day jobs. Our other musician friends and then had you tried though? I mean, were you doing a band thing or no? no? You were just no, hanging out. Life was over. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you were, I, I was going to somehow try to finagle a, a gig at the at the steel mill in Fontana was my plan because my brother had worked the slag heap there for a while. Yeah, and so I thought filled it. Yeah. yeah, and um, so I thought you know it's either try to get a longshoreman gig or eventually try to get the slag heap. You know, I love that there. because you grew up in what you grew up in. That the options were these, like you know, amazingly uh, taxing physical labor. Well, it was in those days. One, it would be great if those jobs were there now, and they were union jobs. Yeah, they were union jobs. Yeah, and um, so that was like, if I can nab one of those, you're dialed. Yeah, you know. And so anyway, so I saw these guys and saw that they were my age, and yeah. I thought maybe before I die at the age of twenty four, yeah. you know. <laughs> Maybe it's worth one last shot. Let's play music. Yeah. And it just was one of these things that my brother was feeling the same way. And uh, Johnny Baz and Bill Babin, the other guys from the Blasters, are feeling the same way. Because literally, and my brother was kind of forced to play with me because all the good guitar players, and this is true, were either dead or in jail. And so he The older was, guys or the younger guys? Your peers. They, they, these are older guys. Yeah. These are all older guys, you know, the five, four yeah. or five years older. So my brother was stuck with me. Yeah. And then we played a wedding. We got a, a, a wedding gig. A friend of ours named Frank Frillo, great harmonica player, got a wedding gig. And he actually put the band together. Yeah. And he said, I got this gig, you know. Yeah. And so it was the first time my brother and I had never played guitar together. We'd never, you know, until recently, until the new CD, we'd never even sang together. Yeah. Um, so this is like May of 1979. Yeah, we'd never played guitar together. We'd lived it all of our lives. He would play something on guitar, leave the room. I'd grab the guitar and, and imitate his fingerings. Who's older, him? Yeah, Phil, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the baby. But when we played together, this like magic thing happened. That's yeah. hard to explain because my style <laughs> is rooted in uh, my guitar styles rooted in in urban guys like Johnny Guitar Watson and 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 your pal like Turner yeah and people like Carl Perkins and Chuck Berry and but it's also got elements of you know pre-war blues guys and and pre-war uh, mountain music guys where Phil is like a multi uh, multi finger ragtime kind of picker oh really yeah it's really he's really he in those days he was amazing at it and he's yeah. getting very good again 
But you put those together, and you had suddenly you had this blaster sound, right? And you had the history of American music, right kinda, there. Yeah, you had what? Well, yeah, you had this nice thing where, um, um, yeah, just the different disciplines, right, came together, you know, totally innocently, you right? Know, it was not planned. It was not right. Like, okay, you pick like this, and I'll pick like that. Just what we'll you have, did. It was just suddenly these two brothers yeah. had this thing, and so then we decided, okay, let's give it a shot, and we'd been going to the sneaking over to the punk rock clubs yeah and uh in la and you know there was this great era around that time of innocence and discovery where you had amazing bands that were all doing a different take on this thing so you had the weirdos and who falls into that you know the weirdos category yeah the band yeah weirdos would be eventually you would say sort of the hardcore punk scene came out of like the sound of the weirdos or the dickies right and then you had bands like the screamers yeah that were like an art you know we used to call art damage bands you right know, that was all sure. synthesized keyboards who were a great band that never made any records yeah and but could sell out the whiskey for three nights yeah you know? yeah um you know arthur j and the gold cups black yeah. randy and the metro squad and then of course x was a baby band then yeah and going to see these bands it was just like and realizing again these are people my age now my background being in, in blues and r&b and that kind of stuff um meaning you could play no not necessarily just what my what my taste ran what what my historical background right in, in that you can't hang around guys like big joe turner uh or lightning hopkins at a certain age and not acquire a certain political and and um or my old man and not acquire a certain political kind of viewpoint or um i'm not being very clear about that so there were and also cultural you know what do you mean but like you mean like um a, that there was a, a sort of a righteousness to the well, integrity of the music or well, you actually thought there was yeah i liked the I, the underdog the working man well all that all yeah. that there there's you know when you when you play blues good yeah it's with integrity when you sure. play blues bad yeah, it's attack. just bad yeah yeah, you know, yeah and that's the same with bluegrass or well that's or that funny else. thing where it's like you know when when blues like if you pick up a guitar and play blues at some point uh everyone associated with just shitty bar music and, yeah you know yeah. and there's that fine line between you know really doing it yeah and just just walking through it yeah and playing standards yeah and our take was um um in the late 60s yeah uh, blues became synonymous with like twenty minute songs, right? And right, the, and, the noodling, yeah. And um, and our our thing was if you pick up a a, a chess forty five, yeah. or a seventy eight, it's right. two and a half minutes long, right? And so we would do the songs two and a half minutes long, and then when I started writing songs, it was the same thing. It was like two and a half minutes, three minutes, done, out, yeah. And then we when we the the whole band. Uh, when when we got together and we were playing, you know, basically we were a blues R and B band, but we played the songs really fast, and it wasn't quite intentional. It was just the way that those four guys played together. Yeah, that we play like this. You yeah, know? if you remove me, they would play differently, and then right. you throw me in, remove my brother, we'd play differently. But the four guys together, we had, um, especially in the early days, it was it was kind of loud and fast, and and we could, you know, we did a. I'll never forget we did a, a gig, a New Year's gig at the Olympic Auditorium at the Bucket of Blood downtown LA. <laughs> the Bucket of Blood. Yeah, and it was Black Flag, Fear, Saccharin Trust, all these kind of bands. And us. 
Oh, that's those were California bands, right? Yeah. Fear was and yeah, Black Fear, Flag. Black Flag. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But so, like, so you guys show up playing tight fucking mm-hmm. rock and roll music. Yeah. In a world where these guys are just blowing things up. So, like, I just, I, I mean, I, I understand the, the integrity of punk and that there was some good drumming and stuff, but there was a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, in terms of, like, the difference between you guys taking the stage and what they just went through, I would think was was different. Yeah, you know, because we were, yes and no. Uh, the great thing about, the thing I liked about punk rock, especially in the early days, was it, it was liberating. Right. And we had grown up, again, you know, between our old man and, and going to the Ashgrove and the Ashgrove club was very politically, you know, um, intense. We'll put it that way. You know, it was burned down two times by Cuban anti Castro Cubans cause they thought it was a pro Castro right. place. And, um, so we had that, it, it, that kind of oddball thing, yeah. you know, we, we'd experience oddball worlds. So that when you would go to a, a rock show, say at the Fabulous Forum into some sports arena, it didn't have the vibe, right? You know, it was just like cold and antiseptic, yeah. and it wasn't doing anything for right. you. But then when you started going to these early punk rock shows, it was like, oh, here's the vibe, you know. And part of it's a sense of community. These, you know, the people in the punk rock scene had a sense of community because yeah. they in the in those days they were all outcasts, right? Whether they were Darby Crash from uh, Beverly Hills High. Or, you know, um, uh, uh, a Chicano kid from East L.A. Right. They all had this thing of we're, we're outcasts and we this is the world we're creating for ourselves. We're on the edge. We're on the edge. Yeah. yeah. We're on the edge and, and we're funny looking and people don't like us. And we're coming together because we have to. You but know? there was only like a, a few bands that did what, uh, what sort of you guys did, which was really take the the classic sounds of american music and jack it up yeah i mean you were doing i mean i know your hair was a little higher yeah at that time and, and you were sort of <laughs> proudly you know, but that audience still took to you right i mean that, to some extent you know yeah i mean we i in for the first couple of years i booked the band so i my attitude was we'll play anywhere you know that will you know because we originally couldn't get gigs in hollywood uh, because of where we were from. We were from Downey. We knew no one. And the deal to get a gig at, you know, the Whiskey or the right. or Madame Wong's, you know, I would go in with a little cassette demo tape, and the first thing they would say is, who do you know? Right. Oh, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> what other bands do you know? Nobody. <laughs> okay, see you later. <laughs> and so, I, you know, we started out doing, um, we started out playing, um, like uh, we used to play this biker bar in in West Long Beach, right by the docks, called the the Sundance Saloon. Right. Where I saw one night, and we played for free beer. Yeah. Uh, I saw a great thing where one of the guys, I think, I think the bar it was the Heathens was the motorcycle club. Uh, yeah, pick up our drummer Bill Bateman and drop him headfirst through a pool table. It was really good. Oh, man. <laughs> it was a rough place. And, but it's uh, weird that your music, like you could play either one. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it was rooted enough in something people understood yeah. Yeah. that if you want to just kick it up and just jam yeah, and do what you guys do, it's not going to be, it's, it's the same thing could, could play to either audience. Yeah. Well, we, we, the, 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 um, we had a couple things on our side. We had youth on our side. Yeah. And so people relate or they get off on youth. Like, how did these young guys find this old music? Yeah. And we had a lot of energy. And so we, yeah, there were certain bands that took to us, you know, like whether they were sort of power pop bands like the Plimsolls and people like that took to us and said, oh, great, you guys are great. Or there was bands, you know, like 
a band that straddled both punk and power pop like the early Go-Go's. Yeah. Great. You know, you want to do some gigs? Yeah. And it really just was like a word of mouth thing where, and, and but eventually the, one of the biggest things was when uh, we, this gal down in San Diego booked us to open for X. Yeah. And X were very cautious about whoever opened for them and this and the other. Uh, they were brand conscious, you know, or, or tribally conscious, you know, like you, you don't want to, well, one, you don't want to have a shitty band opening up for you, you know? Right. And so we opened up for X at this place called the Shark Club. Yeah. Um, uh, bucket of Blood. And uh, had a great gig and they loved us and they said, what are you guys doing next month? You want to play the whiskey with us? And we're like, okay. Yeah. And so there was a period in our, in our early days where, um, I think it was like at some point in early part of 81 where in like a two month period we we did shows opening for Queen, Asleep at the Wheel, The Go-Go's and Fear. You know? Wow. So that was like mixing it up, mixing it up. So as far as like the kids, the, the, the kids that were into punk rock. Yeah. Some of them liked us. Some of some of them didn't. But I'm looking here at like at the at the Blasters collection, just the rundown mm-hmm. of the songs. And it's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of songs on there that are politically conscious. Yeah. I mean, Common Man, Boomtown, yeah. Border Radio, yep. uh, American Music to some degree. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's it just uh, and you wrote all those songs. Yeah. And when you, what happened, I know you get, because I just listened to that song with you and your brother. When was that recorded? Like, what's oh, up it was with like your, a year and a half ago. What's up with your brother? Yeah. Is that, yeah. yeah. With, the mean, sh- with the shtick at the end? <laughs> well, yeah, but, but it's like, I mean, that was the question that must have haunted both of you for years. What happened to the Blasters? Early on, we realized, early on, what we wanted to do was play Big Joe Turner songs and Helen Wolf songs and right. Carl Perkins songs. That's just what we wanted to do. Right. You know, where Junior Parker was was a big influence on us. And, and you know, if, if I could do that, I would do that now. You know, just, hey, you want to start a band, just do Junior Parker songs? You got it. Yeah. Uh, but to get a record deal and to get any kind of buzz going and to get out of the biker bars and the, you know, hoot night at country bars and, and you know, northeast long beach yeah um we had to write original songs right and so then i started writing them because i had i had studied uh poet how to write poetry with some great teachers um down at long beach state in my abortive uh college career but the one thing the teachers taught us was how to write in traditional poetic forms how to write sonnets how to write alexandrines how to write haikus yeah you know how to do all that stuff so are there some blasters haiku songs because i don't i don't know but what i learned what i had no idea of was syllable count right what iambic pentameter was all that yeah and so when when we decided okay we're going to write original songs i think it was like in what is it like uh september of 79 we said yeah we need originals everybody come back to rehearsal next week with two original songs yeah and of course the other three guys showed up with nothing. And I yeah. came with three songs. Hey, yeah. I got I got an extra one. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and uh, you know I'd been writing songs my whole life, but I never wrote them down. And so it wasn't until then that I started writing down these things that were in my noggin. You know, yeah, bumping around. So anyway, what happened when uh, when I left the band? Um, they lost their songwriter. And um, why'd you, know, you leave though? Why did I leave? Oh, a variety of reasons. One was, um, uh, the, as a songwriter, you can't, you, you know, if you're writing songs for someone else all the time, you're going to, you, you, you're going to run out of things that you share. You know, like, for example, if, if Barbara Streisand called you up and said, Mark, 
write me an album. Yeah. You would sit down and say, okay, what's, what do I have in common with Barbra Streisand? Right. What will she relate to? And then you probably come up with 10 great songs. Right. And well, that's, well, that's well, very optimistic, and I appreciate <laughs> all right, the support. Eight. eight. <laughs> you throw a couple of covers in, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, you're, and you're fine. I think you should really cover this song. <laughs> that's just saying, I can't write you any more songs, but I got an idea. Perhaps can we strip maybe the long guitar solos? We could be a full <laughs> album. Um, and I'd kind of written out, basically, I'd kind of come to an end of, of songs that I could write that the band would play and my brother would sing. Yeah, you know, because they're you know bands, whether it's the Rolling Stones or the the kid band down the street, there are rules, and each band's got its rules. Like you know, the Rolling Stones have never recorded a polka, so that tells you they have a rule: no polkas. What were the blaster you know? rules? Well, to to not to not go too far away, right? Not to know? get too deep or not too to get, poetic or too no, deep. not the musically, not to leave the, right. not to leave the uh, the three four chord songs. Right. My, my brother and I, there, we had a blaster song called "So Long, Baby Goodbye." That's a great song. Yeah, it's a great song. That's we had a fist fucking... fight at rehearsal over the, it's a it's you know it's these changes you know um, the standard R and B changes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just yeah. So this is the minor, E minor. Yeah. My brother thought, and he still thinks to this day, that minor chords are are fooling people. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. We just had this argument a couple weeks ago. Come on, I'm not kidding. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> And I, and I was saying, Phil, you know, listen to James Brown. It's full of minor chords. Listen to, minor. I don't care. I, uh, those are, you're just fooling people. What? But he makes this shit up and he lives by it. You know, it's just. It, minor chords are but fooling we had a, people. But when I brought that song in, That's you know, because I, I would write, I'd write the songs yeah. and then we'd have rehearsal and I'd bring them in. Yeah. And um, yeah, we had a, we had a fist fight over that E minor chord. And it's just like it's a turnaround. It's nothing. I mean, well, it's it's the melody of the friggin' song, right? Right. And, right. and it gives it the the sad little flavor of the song of gee, he's either happy he's leaving or he's sad he's leaving. Hey, maybe he's both. Yeah. It's got a minor chord, right? You know, yeah, but yeah, we uh, tears flying, two brothers over you know, that in front of the band. Quit just, fooling people. Bam, quit fooling people. You're lying with those minor <laughs> chords. You know? I'm like, and I'm like, and then I'm like trying to sh- show how it's every you know doo wop song structure. It's just it's just a song from the 50s <laughs> fuck you no fuck you you know and um you so yeah that, you, you so, don't think that could have been rooted in anything else it might have been older than that, <laughs> no, no, than no just a minor chord just a minor chord finally i kind of won eventually by bringing in the gospel aspect of these are gospel changes oh, so you, you, know, you got if you found a little leeway there yeah holding my jaw yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> but no phil it's like gospel music <laughs> like, all right yeah and, and that finally kind of convinced him and 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 the band eventually, after enjoying watching the two of us go at it, eventually said, it's cool. We'll do it. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. But it, 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 you know, so you have those issues with writing songs for, for a band and for anyone else to sing. And so on one hand, I knew that if I was going to survive as a songwriter and grow, I would have to write the songs for myself. And then was there- know, anybody else was welcome to sing them. Right. You know, but I'd have to write them for me thinking, okay, I've got to sing these. Right. You know. So, but that, like, was there, I mean, the, the Blasters was a successful band. In our way, yeah. I mean, you guys were in demand. You, yeah. And, and I, I mean, we I- worked constantly. I, I imagine that, what, did Marie Marie chart? A couple of them charted, didn't they? Well, Marie Marie was a huge hit 
internationally. Uh-huh. It was like the fourth song I ever wrote down, maybe fourth or fifth. Right. And it's a long story, but there was a Welsh rockabilly singer who was a very good looking young man at the time named Shaken Stevens in England. And he covered it. Yeah. And he had a huge hit. It was like the number one hit in England. And then due to that, it became number one in Australia, number one in, I have- His version. His version, yeah, not ours. And uh, his version was very well produced. Yeah. um, Had Albert Lee playing the lead. You know, you can't go wrong. I never knew about that guy until recently. Albert Lee? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I, I had Nick Lowe in here, and then someone drove me to a, a weird video of a of a rock pile uh, uh, recording yeah. of Dave Edmonds watching Albert Lee, and I had no idea who that guy was. He's sort yeah. of a wizard. Yeah, he, he's uh, he sort of like took the uh, country style of uh, of picking into realms of methamphetamine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like the bluegrass style. Yeah. He just took it and jacked it up even more. And that's know? all, I, I didn't even really realize that, but that whole, uh, the sort of rockabilly resurgence alongside the punk thing sort of probably, yeah, obviously welcomed yeah. your t- style of music yeah. too. You probably got lumped into that more than you did punk, right? Uh, it depended on what part of the country. Right. You know, we had different fan bases. So he had a big hit with it. He had a big hit with it, and so I started getting, early on in my songwriting career, I started getting these uh, huge royalty checks. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it, it did nothing here. They released it over here, but but it did nothing. His version did nothing in the States, but it was huge. You know, I have versions of Marie Marie in just about every language except Mandarin. Really? Yeah. Yeah, is that, is it, oh, so is it, oh, that's amazing. You so, know, and then sometimes, you know, people don't, it, that Marie Marie's becomes it's such a uh, kind of classic in its way that people don't even believe that I wrote it. Right, right. Uh, know, yeah. There was a great there's a great version, a Zydeco version by this guy Buckwheat Zydeco. Yeah, he's great. And he cut it and then when he cut it in, a, in it was in about 88, 89, he cut it and it became like a regional Zydeco hit in Louisiana and East Texas. And so sometimes I remember running into um, Gino Delafosse, the great um, Zydeco accordion player and we were talking and yeah, we you know what I you know blah blah blah. Somehow Marie Marie came up and he's looking at me and he's like, "You didn't write that." Yeah, I did write that. So you wrote? Wow. Yeah. You know, guy from Downey. Well, the, yeah. <laughs> well, that's got to be the the biggest compliment it. you could have. Oh yeah. Is that yeah. like I thought that was a traditional? That's well, that's yeah, and and the song plays itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even when I wrote it, I was going, "This song, this is a good song." But there was no like, and it, it plays itself. Oh you know? yeah, it's great. And, and there was no like as a band though there was none of the standard sort of like we're about to break let's get fucked up and you know there was none of that kind of imploding oh yeah that was going on there was a fight going on between my brother and i you know well always and various other members you know we were all fighting about something but my the, the main thing i think was uh i i would have been i'd be dead if i'd stayed in the band because i i was drinking to excess and uh, I'd lived what polite society would might call it a fairly wild life. And I could feel it between, you know, because we were always rock and roll life. Yeah. And we, you know, because you go from, you know, um, you go from one life and then suddenly you realize a couple of years later you're deep inside another. And it seemed like you'd cross the edge. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was going to, you know, like I'll give you an example. You know, I quit the job uh, in January 1980 as a fry cook. And then I left the blasters in, um, 
uh, December of 85 and joined X, and I had already been doing gigs with X. And then at some point I signed a deal to do a solo record in about um, a late 86 with the Nick Lowe's actually company, uh, Demon Records, Nick and Elvis Costello's label. And then, um, and then around, and then I got picked up by CBS Nashville. And so around 1988, I realized that I'd lived about a lifetime in about what felt like a year. Suddenly, yeah. and suddenly I wound up, I saw that I was broke and, um, you know, um, my mother had died. A lot of friends had died all in this little period. I went from, you know, one, one life living, you know, sort of in the axis of Downey and Long Beach between, you know, uh, you know, you know, very close friends down there to people. I never saw them again. Right. You know, and, and suddenly I'm surrounded by these other people and then they're gone and then they're gone and that, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, so anyway, it was like I had to, uh, I, I'm not going to say the word sober up because it wasn't that, but I had to not, I was going nuts. Yeah, slow it down. So I had saved up maybe, I don't know, 30 grand from being an ex in the blasters. Yeah. I had saved up that much money. So I, I was like, you know, fuck you. If I want to go play guitar in a garage. I'm going to go play guitar in a garage. I'm going to play loud and I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. And nobody can tell me I can't start a band in a garage. Right. Oh, you can't go play music. You can't go on a tour. We're not going to give you money to do that. Yeah. And I got my spine up and I was like, you know, fuck you. I'll pay for it. Yeah. And so, you know, so I had a whatever five piece band and that's hotel rooms and gas and all that. There jazz. goes that 30. Yeah, that, that 30 went. So by, yeah, 88, I'm selling guitars. Oh, my. <laughs> I'm selling shit. Did you have regrets, though? I mean, like, like in looking back on it now, I mean, how do you process that? I mean, do you, do you look back and go, fuck, I should have done this, I should have done that? Or you oh, right? yeah, but, I, I, you know, I've got a stubborn streak. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm still the guy that, you know, was in the blasters. So I still have that stubborn streak of you can't tell me what I can and can't do. You right. just can't do it because I can, I'll just go do it without your permission, you know? So, you know, cause in the early days of the blasters, we would go and do these audition nights, you know, in, in long beach bars yeah. or orange County, California bars, you know, playing, you know, junior Parker songs. And then the, the, the booker would say, well, can't you guys do any cheap trick? No, the kids fuck. love cheap trick. Yeah. If you do cheap trick, we'll, we'll you'll make some money. So and it's nothing against cheap trick. I right. think they're a great band, but it's like, no, this is what we do. Right. And you know, fuck you. Yeah. We're gonna play this music in in wherever we can. We're not a wedding band. Well, we've yeah. done weddings, yeah. but we'll do it our way. You <laughs> yeah, know. Right. Right. And so my yeah, I get my my spine gets all you know. I'm I'm a pretty easygoing guy, but then when people tell me we want you to do this, you know, so then CBS moved me over to CBS Pop. Yeah. And I had a, a very interesting uh A&R guy there named uh, who, uh Bob Pfeiffer who had a band called Human Switchboard and Bob had gone out out of the musician side and gone over to the to the to the the corporate side and a great guy and all that but he was giving me Eurythmics records and said, "Can you sound more like this?" <laughs> And I understand his dilemma because he's stuck with this guy, and it's like, well, can you can you sound like yeah. the Eurythmics? Can you sound like uh, whatever else was big at the time? And I'm like, no, I can't. You know, I sound like me, and you you know. Um, hey, well, you're lucky you didn't get into that trap where you're like, I'll try, and they hook you up with a producer that just buries you under bullshit. I'm smarter than that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> although, 
Although I have to say that, uh, you know, no big producer ever came in to say, you know, I may have done it. I don't know. No, but, you would know. I mean, there's a couple of Springsteen's records there that are sort of like, whoa, that production's a little gnarly. Yeah, well, you know, the late 80s got ugly for everybody, yeah. I think. You know, it was like they all were sobering up or, or on their last binge. And, you know, there's that whole thing of, you know, when people try too hard to have a hit record or to be relevant to, quote, the kids. Yeah. You know, what are the kids listening to? They like the big drum sound. Okay, well, let's, let's do it. Let's do it. You know, hey, I wrote even, this song called Blowing in the Wind. Put a big drum on it. Even, even ZZ Top, man. Once the beards came, I was sort of like, what's going on? Yeah. Tell me about Carlos Guitarlos. <laughs> <laughs> First night I met Carlos. For those of you out there, he's a, he's a, Carlos Guitarlos is a brilliant guitar player and a brilliant character and the first night i ever met him i saw a tv that was about the big old-fashioned you know yeah th thick ass tv it was up on top of a shelf that was about eight feet high and it fell the edge landed on top of his head just he was bam! on stage on no sta oh, no just this was at a this was at a <laughs> joint called the zero zero club yeah. and carlos was hired as the bouncer which is kind of like you know hiring uh uh i don't know the the Navy SEALs to right. be the security at an Al Qaeda convention. Yeah. You know, it's just, you're just asking for trouble. So yeah, somehow this TV got knocked off this eight foot tall shelf and it landed, the pointy end landed on top of his head with this huge crunch, fell off, smashes to the floor and he's like, oh, okay, who's got the beer? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One time, one time in those days, we, we, there was, this place was open. You had to be a musician or an artist to get into this to get into this joint and you could drink shitty beer until 6 a.m. Yeah. And uh, so one morning at like 6 a.m., yeah, we asked Carlos. Carlos like, hey, can you guys give me a ride home? Sure. So we were we were heading back to Downey and he was, he was living in nearby here in Glissel Parker. And so whatever, we're driving up these little hillside roads and finally at some point he just goes, I'll just get out here. And we're driving like, you know, 35 miles an hour. He just rolls out, somersaults right. out of the car and rolls down the hill. Right. He was that kind of guy. He was kind of indestructible. But like, was he, like, because I bought that that record, I think you had something to do with uh producing. Yeah, I played on it, yeah. Or I played on it. But like, you know, he was sort of presented, because I didn't know him, but he was presented as one of these guys and I always have a, a, an affection for these dudes that, you know, a lot of people thought was a great guitar player and then just lost the battle against himself somehow yeah yeah he did for a while and he's 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 a really talented guy he was the guitar player with top jimmy in a band called top jimmy and the rhythm pigs bay area guys no this is la yeah oh, oh, carlos is from you know lincoln heights and it's know, these are the, the contemporaries of yours yeah they all kind of came along they came along later you know um once you know in la the um i'll, I'll be egotistical you know it, the, the blasters kind of with our foreheads you know open the door for roots music yeah you know because after we did it then it was kind of okay and who were know? the who were the f the primary bands like lone justice was lobos yeah they all came later yeah well lobos existed at the time but they were doing um uh acoustic you know um central american music at weddings right and they came backstage one night around 82 i would say um at, at the whiskey go go yeah and they came backstage and we had seen them there'd been like a local pbs thing on this band playing traditional mexican music yeah in east la so they came backstage and they had beards and long hair and yeah. everything and they were like hey do you think we could ever get a gig here's our we just cut some rock and roll and, and my brother phil and i are like oh you're those guys that play you know traditional music hey yeah we're from downey you're what are you from oh you, you yeah. live in whittier blah blah you know blah 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 
And so the next day, we actually we were driving to Colorado to start a tour, and we popped in their little cassette, and it was like, and it was you know uh, uh, Richie Valens, you know, come on, let's go, let's yeah. go, and uh, Farmer John, I'm in yeah. love with your daughter, and then I think one like Norteño, uh, and it was like, hey, these guys are great, so we started giving them gigs, opening for us, and same thing uh, like a year or so later, a year and a half later with Dwight Yoakam, uh-huh. you know, because Dwight was playing to like nobody at the Palomino, and then you know I walked in one night just looking to get drunk and there was this, there was like 25 people in this amazing band of this great singer so I was like hey you're doing gigs with the blasters cuz that's the way you know that was um when we started because of those bands like X or the Go-Go's or the Plimsolls and countless others that gave us gigs opening we kind of like would take a share of their audience and right. we constructed our audience and then you turn around and you do the same thing for other people you yeah, know, yeah, we would yeah. do it for everybody from you know the gun club to rank and file to green on red all these the bands that came after us and when you played with x i mean was that a tough transition how come that didn't last longer well it was an easy real easy transition because we'd already done the knitters and you wrote fourth of july yeah that's a great song every time i talk to a musician it gets eventually gets me going i really like that guitar thing that's awesome i'm the same way i'm the same way (laughs) i get i get around people that i like yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, that was cool. Uh, but, I get around people I like, and I'm just like, oh, man, at 2 a.m., I'm alone, I'm in my car, and that song came on, and dude, yeah. wow, and then they look at me like I'm nuts. So That's why I stay away from meeting the people I, uh, that I really like. It's you know? a little weird. Hey, Dave, you want to meet Jerry Lee Lewis? No. <laughs> Too much pressure, man. <laughs> yeah, 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 I can't, can't. can't handle it, man. Maybe in an elevator. But that guitarless guy, what, he's just, you just, he's just like a street guy now right he was a street guy he moved uh, after uh the i don't mean to bring it back to that because i just i think it's fine shows a lot of heart that you you helped this dude out was it like that well he he moved up to san francisco and yeah he basically kind of eventually wound up living on the street getting strung out and uh, yeah well he had you know uh, carlos has a personality that that requires um patience on the part of the observer or the part of the the friend because he is brilliant and um, so a lot of people don't have the patience for brilliant people, you know. And so, and, you know, well, and he enjoyed a good time. Let's put yeah. it that way. Well, I just, when you listen to the record, it's interesting because, like, you know, because I kind of just read the press material. I didn't yeah. know who he was. Yeah. I knew you were on the record, and there was a couple other people I knew on the record. But you could definitely hear a guy that had some pretty fucking tight chops, yeah. you know, trying to get him back. Yeah. And there was a rawness to him, you know, reengaging, you know, with, with a band yeah. and with that whole thing yeah. that was really raw and good and his voice is beat up yeah. he sounds like he'd been through the shit yeah. and it, it had sort of a, a nice integrity to it no he you know he's um, guys like Carlos have that deal where they're they're yeah energy is a good word they're, there's so much so many thoughts going on yeah. inside their head that they're trying to get them all out at once mm-hmm. you know and 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 that album that carlos guitarless record you're talking to it's got that vibe of this may be the only record i make man i gotta get it out i gotta get it (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. and that's great you know and that that was um you know that was like the spirit you know of of 20 years earlier in 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 the la scene was there was just so many people with ideas trying to get them out and he was sort of frozen in time in a way i guess well i think that um he had been away for so long and he had a lot of ideas 
you know (laughs) (laughs) he had 20 years of ideas to get out and so yeah it's a nice it's a nice record so now when with your solo career now i know you've had you know a few groups of people that you've played with and uh you you seem to be constructing a pretty you know large american songbook (laughs) Uh, hopefully yeah (laughs) Yeah. and the record you just gave me 11 and 11 what is that one that's the most recent and that's just uh, who's the band uh, well, that was made. I was on tour with. I had a the CD I did before that was called Dave Alvin the Guilty Women, which was uh, me with um, with women. We were on tour, and I don't write songs really on the road. Right. I don't know if you do write bits on the road. It, it's hard. You I, know. Yeah, I'm just whenever they come. Yeah, but I, I, when you're, you know. Yeah, you. It's, it's on the hard. road. It's hard to do any it's work hard at to all. Do any work. Sure. But for whatever reason, with the women, I could write on the road. So I just started huh, that's writing. Interesting. Yeah, I was just writing songs just for the hell of it, and then I would, uh, you know, I'd have a week off, and I'd call my engineer in L.A., and then and he'd say, "Yeah, I got the time," and I'd say, "Fine." And then I'd call friends of mine. Yeah. Hey, what are you doing Tuesday? I got a song. You want to cut it? Okay, see you there. Then we cut it. Then I go back out on the road, and then I'd write another song, and you know, and and in the case of the song with my brother Phil, that's on there. What's up with your brother? That. Uh, I was on tour, and there was a great club in Madison, Wisconsin, called the High Noon. Uh, and um, the one drawback to the club is there's no bathroom in the dressing room, which is always a drag because you then you have to go to the public, bathroom yeah. and you got to do an in-store. Yeah, yeah. You do a meet and greet walk in the bathroom. Through, walk you know? through the crowd. Yeah, and, and you're standing there and you're, you're standing at the urinal. And so, you, some guy you know, goes, why don't you have a gold record? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and some guy says to me before the show, I, yeah. you know, I go and I'm standing at the urinal and the guy comes stands next to me. Hey, Dave, how you doing? You know. Okay. Hey, what's up with your brother? Like, yeah, he's doing his thing. You know? <laughs> Go up, play the gig, and then wait. Like you wait, you get off the stage and you yeah. wait a half an hour. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, I'm going to make the run to the bathroom now. Yeah. And I ran to the bathroom, go in there. And then a different guy, this is true, yeah. different guy comes up, stands next to me. Hey, Dave. Yeah, how you doing? Yeah. So, your brother, what's up with him? And then I was like, okay. And went back to the hotel and basically wrote the song. And um, so, yeah, you, you take it where you can get it. And then I called Phil and said, you want to sing a song together? And he was like, yeah. So then went and recorded that and then went on the road. So, um, um, Well, that's just because they love you, man. They love the Blasters. I mean, that's the what band, that is. Yeah, the band certainly had its effect, you know, because there were people that have still not, never forgiven me for leaving. Right. You know, uh, and I know who they are. Because I see them, you know, when I do sit in with my brother or something or, or, or do a quick, you know, every now and then we'll do a, some quick reunion gigs just for fun, you know. That's and funny because the story I heard blamed him. Blame Phil? Yeah. For what? They just, uh, the, when, I, when I heard, uh, it was years ago, they, they said that Phil was out of control and you had a split. We were both out of control. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he said diplomatically. But we were, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we were... You know, it, uh, again, it, it's it's hard. You know, we weren't the Jackson Five, right? Yeah, right. Or we weren't the Rolling Stones. We weren't. A you huge... mean there wasn't a million dollars a day coming? Yeah, in it the... wasn't anything yeah, like yeah. that. But you know, I was a fry cook in Long Beach. Yeah, and and then you know, two and a half years later, you're in Time Magazine's top ten records of the year. Yeah. And you're going to to exotic locales like Kansas City, oh yeah, and uh, you know, and and Buffalo, and and these places, and you're meeting crazy girls, mm-hmm. and you've you've got all these new crazy friends, and 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 because they're your followers, and you're getting paid to jump up on jump up and down on stage and play real loud and play yeah. like an amateur. Hey, this is great, yeah. and 
uh, it, it'll fuck with you. Yeah, I, it'll I, fucks with your brain, you know. I, and yeah. you know, so like when, when um, you know, well, all right, we take these athletes when they're you know, sure. Andrew Bynum or something. Yeah. He's twenty four years old, and and you just you just think, God, I have, you know, if I was if I had Andrew Bynum's money and all that, at me at twenty four, yeah. how fucked up in the head I would be yeah. rolling around with eight million dollars a week or whatever right you know that shit will fuck with you and it kind of fucked with us because what you mean pussy and drugs and beer coast to coast anywhere you want it'll fuck with you it'll fuck with you <laughs> yeah <laughs> it'll fuck with you it's addicting yeah I, I, but I, uh, you know you, you we never lost perspective or anything right, like right. that it was just you know um you know because i never really got into drugs or anything yeah i you know i certainly did them but then one day, I think it was, it was like early 82. Yeah. I hated the sound of birds in the morning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I, yeah. you know, just hated it. And yeah. then you're laying in bed and you go, why? I don't want to do this. And so it was really easy. It's just like, okay, stop. Yeah. And, um, you know, but other people maybe didn't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the story I heard. Um, <laughs> well, let's, you, you want to play a song, will you? Sure, if you'll sing it. I don't know how to sing. What are you talking like, about? I heard you sing one of my songs in San Francisco. I did, but I, you know, I'd have to look up the, I'd have to look up the words. Oh, we could sing it together. Yeah. All right. What key did you do it in? I think I did it in like an open, like an E or something. An E? Oh, now I'm nervous. I don't know how to fucking nervous. sing. What's the worst that can happen? I fuck up your song. Do you, do you sing along? Did you learn it off the record? I uh, like what I did was like I just loved the song, yeah. and uh, you know I you know I just you know kind of you know made it my own. I didn't yeah. try to you know because I you know I learned the chords and, yeah. and uh, you know I just I did what I could. But Albert, I, but I can't. in the room. I can't. Uh, you like, do it that fast? No, I, I'm, you do your song. I don't know how to well, do it. I did it once. Kind of in the blasters, you kind of did. Beautiful. Well, is this seat taken? Would you mind some company? You've been alone all evening. Would you like to talk with me? Now, do I come here often? Well, you might say that I do. And is someone home waiting? Honey, I was just gonna ask you Cause you're the prettiest woman I think I've ever seen And tonight, if you let me I'd like to help you dream Well, you got the nicest brown eyes You still got your little girl smile you know you should have been in movies, honey You say you haven't heard that in a while Well, you sound just like Faith Hill Singing on the radio Do you know someplace quiet Where both of us could go Cause you're the prettiest woman That I think I've ever seen Tonight, if you let me, I'd like to help you dream to the fire. Cause I think I know what it looks like when you 
get back home Baby, dreaming is all that you got left And I could tell you sweet lies Like you've never heard before You see, I haven't stopped dreaming yet All right, Brother Mark another drink oh yeah well, certainly <laughs> how about another drink what's that you gotta go home you say it's been nice talking honey why are you leaving me alone because you're the prettiest woman that i think i've ever seen and tonight if you let me Help you dream. And then he walks across the smoky bar in 1984, sits down next to the next woman and says, Do I come here often? You might say that I do. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Isn't great? That was fucking awesome. Yeah. Oh, that was fun, dude. Thanks for indulging me. You got it. You got it, Mark. And thanks for talking. Thanks for asking. All right, man. All right. Okay, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, what else? You know the drill. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Get on that mailing list. Kick in a few shekels. Buy some of the new merch. Check out the episode guide. See which ones you want. Maybe pick up the app. Get the premium app. You can stream everything. There might be a couple more of those first 100 uh, episodes on DVD, MP3 files. Pick up some JustCoffee.coop. Knock yourself out. Leave a comment. Try to be nice. Boomy, come home. Boomy. Ah, it's fucking heartbreaking, man. I'm going to try to work through it. Again, thank you for your support. I have to memorize lines now and figure out what choices I would make if I were me acting like me.